You're listening to Earshot from WXXI News. I'm Veronica Volk. This week, it's been 20 years since the attacks on September 11th. And a lot has changed, including the way it's taught in schools. I want my students to know that history is not just a bunch of words in a textbook. I want them to know that it's personal. Plus, some of the people closest to the attacks were iron workers from the Akwesasne Mohawk Reservation. You were there to, to give a hand. You're just there to see if you can do what you do to help. And we talked to the creator behind Aspie Works about his company and a production he says changed his life. It's dedicated to the magic of live theater. Dedicated to moments where actors and audience can come together. All that from your local news podcast, Earshot. Support for Earshot from WXXI News is provided by RockVox Recording and Production, presenting Legacy Cast, audio and video recordings of loved ones telling their stories for posterity. Produced in a full-service studio located in Bushnell's Basin. More at rocvox.com. It's been 20 years since the terrorist attacks on September 11th. And while millions of people watch the events unfold in real time, whether in person or on their televisions, today's high school students weren't even alive yet. For their teachers, that day is more than just a page in a textbook. It's a vivid memory. Megan Zarez is an education reporter with WSKG in Binghamton. She has this story. There's a lot that's changed since 9-11, including the way that teachers talk about that day in the classroom. Scott Simmons has been teaching social studies at Windsor High School for almost 20 years. A year after, two years after, I, I had a PowerPoint presentation and I just showed pictures of that day. You know, we showed people covered in dust or asbestos. We showed the planes hitting. Some of those kids would have some tears in their eyes. But Simmons says the discussion has changed since those first few years. It's gone from a bigger discussion to, you know, we we may spend 10 to 15 minutes on it more if the kids are really interested in talking about why. Otherwise, if the kids really aren't, then because of the curriculum crunch, I'm going to move on. After all, there's more and more U.S. history every year, and students have questions about things that are happening around them now, like last year's Black Lives Matter protests or the January 6th attack on the nation's capital. Alan Singer teaches education at Hofstra University. For kids, there's two time epics. There is BM and AM, before me and after me. (laughs) And that history... In real life history, as you say, starts when I was born. So for me, it starts in 1950. And for kids today, it starts after 9-11. Singer says he wants students to form their own opinion based on multiple points of view. Having their teachers as primary sources helps. Teachers like Brian McKinley. He teaches social studies at Vestal High School. But before that, he worked as a traffic reporter in New York City. When the first plane hit the World Trade Center, McKinley was flying above Manhattan in a traffic helicopter. I heard my pilot yelling, which he never did or none would ever do. And I looked at him and he pointed and I saw the cloud of smoke coming out of the North Tower. McKinley says he tells that story every year. 
I want my students to know that history is not just a bunch of words in a textbook. I want them to know that it's personal for so many of us. Sean Swider agrees. He teaches social studies at the Owego Free Academy. He says his goal is to help students form their own connection to historical events like 9-11. We dig into things like the Patriot Act and our response to it. Would you be okay if someone randomly looked in your trunk versus randomly looked on your phone? This year, Swider says he expects students will also have questions about the United States' withdrawal from Afghanistan. One of the biggest employers in Owego is Lockheed Martin, which has a lot of big military contracts. With current events, though, Swider says respect is important in the classroom. You know, I, I try to remind students, hey, you don't know what everyone in the room is thinking right now. You can't read their thoughts. Swider says talking about 9-11 is a reminder that social studies is more than just history. It's how to be a good citizen. Megan Zarez is an education reporter with WSKG. You can read more about how schools are teaching 9-11 on their website, wskg.org. Hi, this is Evan Dawson from WXXI. And if you're enjoying Earshot, then you'll want to subscribe to our other podcast, Connections with Evan Dawson. That's me. On the podcast, you can catch up on discussions about current events, arts, politics, and interesting people. Subscribe to Connections with Evan Dawson, where you subscribe to Earshot from WXXI News. As we continue to remember the events of September 11th, 20 years later, one upstate New York community was hit particularly hard by the attacks. Iron workers from the Akwesasne Mohawk Reservation in the North Country have built New York City skyscrapers for generations. They helped build the World Trade Center. They were working when the Twin Towers fell, and they raced immediately to the rescue and cleanup effort. Anna Williams-Bergen is a reporter with North Country Public Radio. She has this story. On that sunny Tuesday morning, Mohawk ironworker Roger Thomas was working on a high-rise in New York City. 700 feet off the ground with a clear view of Manhattan. He looked across the Hudson River and saw the first plane. We seen the plane hit the top of the building. He hit on the opposite side, so we turned around and looked, and we seen the nose of the plane come through and then the wings. It wasn't too much longer afterwards, the second plane come. It came along the shoreline and he turned almost eye level with us. Thomas says he could see people stranded in the tower's top stories as the buildings caught fire. And the smoke and fire was coming up under them, and they just, they just literally just jumped off. They had no choice. Either that or burn up. After the towers collapsed, the call for help quickly spread through the ironworking community. Many of the first on the scene were volunteers. Paul and Peter Jacobs, brothers from the Akwesasne Mohawk Reservation, were working in the city. Peter says they worked the night shift at Ground Zero just after the attacks. I mean, it was eerie, quiet, and literally it was probably about Six inches of uh, dust, papers, debris, we were walking through. And I, I, I'd look down at my boots and I'm like, man, man, this is crazy. I said, how in the world did they expect us to find anybody who survived this? And if they did, God bless them. The ironworker's job was to clear a path so that rescuers could safely navigate through the wreckage. That meant doing what ironworkers do best, cutting, hooking, and moving steel beams. Paul Jacobs says the pile was so big that the work often felt insurmountable. 
there was so much stuff that was scattered and crushed and everywhere. Pick up sticks. You move one thing, something else could move. Ironworker Michael Mitchell was hired to work at Ground Zero and labored daily at the site well into November. He says he had to compartmentalize to cope with the gruesome nature of the work. You have to sit back and say, okay, well, that's beyond us. We're here in the task to do our skilled trade and work. So we're not no uh, rescuers. Mohawk ironworkers have a reputation for being tough as nails. They have to move heavy steel beams while balancing on girders hundreds of feet in the air. But Paul Jacobs says even that couldn't prepare them for what they witnessed at Ground Zero. You just want to like not think about it because there had to be survivors, there had to be people still alive when we were there, but so far out of, out of reach that you can't actually help them. Peter Jacobs says that, eventually, he put away the memories of his time at Ground Zero. It floated around in my head, oftentimes. I, I put it to rest, though. It's like you just gotta click it off. But the health effects of working long hours and breathing in toxic dust were impossible to avoid. In the beginning, most ironworkers didn't have respirators and used makeshift face coverings or went without. Mitchell says that in the first months, no one was certain about the possible health effects. World Trade Center didn't fall every day. So it was a brand new thing. You look back and you're walking in two feet of asbestos. After only one shift, Peter Jacobs went from running seven miles a day to being diagnosed with asthma and says he still suffers from respiratory issues 20 years later. He considers himself one of the lucky ones. He says a number of Akwesasne ironworkers who assisted with the cleanup have since passed away from cancer. Still others are battling serious health issues. According to Vox, over a thousand first responders have died due to 9-11-related health conditions. September 11th was uniquely personal to Mohawk ironworkers. Mitchell's grandfather and uncles helped construct the Twin Towers. So when they fell, he says he didn't think twice about heading to Ground Zero. Your instincts and everything, you want to go down in that area and try to try to help. I don't understand or see any other way. Jim Rasenberger wrote about this intimate connection Mohawk ironworkers have with September 11th in his book, High Steel. He says they've been building the New York City skyline since around 1900. They were definitely there on those famous early skyscrapers. And families of Mohawk ironworkers have been building this city ever since. That cultural heritage that they bring to the work is fascinating. And it's also, of course, why when the towers went down, it wasn't just buildings collapsing. It was also a great deal of personal history that went down with those towers. Paul Jacobs from the Akwesasne Mohawk Reservation says today he's proud to say he did what he could to help. You were there to, to give a hand. You're just there to see if you can do what you do to help. At least you can say 20 years later, yeah, I was there and I tried to help. Peter Jacobs was later invited to help construct the Freedom Tower, the main building of the reconstructed World Trade Center. He worked on the project for four years and says it was his way of paying respects to those who lost their lives in the attack. It was an honor for me. I, I could honestly say I did it for to give something back. Anna Williams-Bergen is a reporter with North Country Public Radio. You can read more about the Akwesasne Mohawk ironworkers at their website, northcountrypublicradio.org. And finally, 
Justin Riley is a Rochester actor, producer, and playwright. This month, he returns to the KeyBank Rochester Fringe Festival with a play called Ghost Story by British playwright Mark Ravenhill. But it was another production that he says changed his life. My colleague Jeff Spivak spoke to Riley about his career, his company, and about those moments where actors and audience can come together. He has this story. These are the opening words of the best-known work by the late actor and writer Spalding Gray, called Swimming to Cambodia. In February of 1983, I met this incredible British documentary filmmaker named Roland Joffe. He was a very intense man. That was Justin Riley last July at the Multi-Youth Community Cultural Center, the Muck, as we call it in Rochester. Riley's one-man performance was sometimes powerful, sometimes nuanced. Riley, who's now 32 years old, thinks back to a half-dozen nervous years ago, the first time he stood in front of a music stand, opened the script, and waited for the right moment to begin reciting those words. And all I had to do is just look right at Kathy. Her facial expression was almost, almost saying, you, you have this. And, and I just went from there. Kathy, that's Kathleen Russo. Spalding Gray's widow. Gray died in 2004 of suicide. Russo came from her Long Island home to Rochester to see Swimming to Cambodia, and now Riley was breathing new life into Gray. Like Gray, Riley creates theater, some of which he's written himself, some he directs, performs, or produces from other playwrights. His company is called Aspie Works. It's a reference to Asperger's syndrome, Riley recalls being bullied throughout high school by classmates who detected there was something different about him. It wasn't until he was 24 years old that Riley was diagnosed with Asperger's, a condition on the autism spectrum. Russo sees a connection between the young playwright and her late husband. Spalding was severely dyslexic. That was his issue, but it went like um, they didn't diagnose that in the 50s, really. Um, And, you know, once he found his voice, it helped overcome the obstacles. So I'm wondering if that happened with Justin as well. In July, Riley returned once again to swim into Cambodia. The audience was small but appreciative, as is often the case at the Muck. Riley reminded the audience as to why it was here. It's dedicated to the magic of live theater, dedicated to moments where actors and audience can come together for brief period of time, and hopefully tonight, that magic can be right here. And with that came something else we have been missing with the absence of theater. The imagination turned loose. We met the first of the show's shared curiosities, a quilt of exciting, good, and evil characters that live theater can throw together so memorably, as Riley delivered Gray's opening line. In February of 1983, I met this incredible British documentary filmmaker named Roland Joffe. Jeff Spivak is an editor of Arts and Life for WXXI News. You've been listening to Earshot from WXXI News, and we want to know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at earshot at wxxi.org. And subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review and share us with your friends. And stay up to date on local news at our website, wxxinews.org.
Music this week from Blue Dot Sessions and Paddington Bear. I'm Veronica Volk. Thanks for listening. This program is a production of member-supported WXXI Public Broadcasting, Rochester, New York.